Welcome to the Pivot Cast. This episode was recorded on May 17th, 2018 at the Transact Club. This episode features readings from Susan Buffin, Whitney French, and Sophia Sinclair. Just so you know, this episode contains a bit of mature language and themes. Listener's discretion is advised. So welcome to the season 10 finale of Pivot Reading Series. Now, Paul will correct me and say that it's been like 20 years, (laughs) right? Uh, Because Pivot has changed names a few times over the years, moving venues, etc. So I'm going to say thank you to whoever it was who decided to uh, call it Pivot. So we don't have to change the name of the venue each time. Carrie Tone. Big up to Carrie Tone. Season 10 finale of Pivot. This has been in the works for about half a million years. We have Suzanne Bafam tonight, Whitney French, and Safia Sinclair. I'm very excited to announce Suzanne Buffum. Suzanne was born in Montreal and raised in Vancouver, British Columbia. She earned an MA in English Lit University in Montreal and an MFA in Poetry from the Iowa Writers' Workshop. She is the author of three collections. Sorry, there's, it's cut off, so it says collecta. Three collecta, pillow book, <laughs> which was named one of the 10 best poetry books of 2016 by the New York Times. Her other books, a uh, blank, were, were f- one of them was the finalist for the 2011 Griffin Poetry Prize and <laughs> past imperfect winner of the 2006 Gerald Lampert Award. Uh, and she did something in 2003. <laughs> 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 what did any of us do in 2003? <laughs> Anybody? Okay. She moved to Chicago in 2003. Ladies and gentlemen, Suzanne Buffum. <laughs> so I'll just sort of cut off the half of every, the back half of every sentence just to keep that rolling. Um, thank you guys all so much for coming, and thank you to Michelle and Kinesia for organizing this. Kinesia, I think it was almost a year ago that you contacted me, so it's nice to be back in Toronto. Such an incredibly beautiful day today. Um, I'm going to read from the um, third collecta, um, <laughs> and it's a book-length collecta um, of, yeah, I'll drop that now. Uh, yeah, so it's a book-length poem. Um, I'll just start at the beginning and just read until you're asleep. Um, Or ten minutes rolls by, whatever comes first. It's called a pillow book. Among the oldest living pillows in the world today is a smooth block of unpainted wood with a wide crack running through its middle and a shallow indentation on the top. It was found in the tomb of an Egyptian mummy in the fourth dynastic town of Gebelin on the banks of the Nile River. If you came across it in a field, you might assume it had just fallen from a cart. If you found it by the sea, you might suppose it had been knocked loose from a sailboat in a storm. You might kick it or pick it up and toss it like a bottle off the dock. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, okay. F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote lists. Abraham Lincoln took midnight walks. 
Tallulah Bankhead paid a series of young caddies to hold her hand in the dark, as did Marcel Proust. Thomas Edison invented the light bulb so he could read after dark. I put a piece of paper under my pillow at night, and when I could not sleep, I wrote in the dark, wrote Henry David Thoreau, who once spent a fortnight in a roofless cabin with his head on a pillow of bricks. There are two kinds of insomniacs, those who fall asleep easily, only to wake up hours later to toss on their pillows until dawn, and those who toss on their pillows from the start, only to drift off just long enough to be roused at dawn by the crows. A little game I like to play when I crawl into bed at the end of a long day of anything these days is to guess which kind tonight I will be. There are a few dozen lists running through the book, just interspersed with these little prose passages, and the first is a list of um, books I'd like to read someday. I and It by Martin Buber. Queen Lear by William Shakespeare. Moby Dick by Gertrude Stein. Endgame by, Sa by, sorry, Endgame by Dr. Seuss. <laughs> Complete Poems by Sappho. The Interpretation of Dreams by Jorge Luis Borges. Kafka for Dummies <laughs> by Franz Kafka. <laughs> My Mistake by Laura Bush which seems so quaint now. <laughs> what would Jesus do by Jesus Christ? Say Seanigan's pillow book, which has passed the last several nights in the, in the dim glow of my Petzel Tequina II headlamp set on low, provides an exhaustive catalog of petty grievances, as pressing today as they were a millennium ago. One has gone to bed and is about to doze off, the lady complains in her protracted list of hateful things. When a mosquito appears, announcing himself in a reedy voice, one can actually feel the wind made by his wings, and slight though it is, one finds it hateful in the extreme. I would add to this list, as I often feel it incumbent upon me to do, the endless intermittent tinkling through the half-open windscreen of one's deaf neighbor's wind chimes, the pre-dawn post-amorous blather of young robins from the treetops, and one's husband squinting peevishly from his pillow at night when one turns on the bathroom light to fish one's dripping headlamp from the toilet bowl. Kings and commoners alike have known the value of a good pillow forever. From Quito to Cairo to Chicago to Zhang Yang, examples can be found in museums all over the world. During my sleepless hours some nights, I try to imagine the whole collection. Melatonin, Lunesta, NyQuil, Zquil, Ativan, 
Ambien, Lorazepam, Trazodone, Warm Milk, Hot Baths, Counting Sheep, Counting Backwards from a Thousand in French. Still I toss and turn through the night with a pillow on my head and another clutched like a mule between my knees. Some nights I search for solutions online. On Google Shopping, I find the Sobakawa cloud as seen on TV, with over 30 million cooling micro air beads to conform to my shoulders and neck while cradling my head in a fluffy cloud of nanotechnology. A pillow over 300 years in the making, based on traditional Japanese buckwheat hull pillows, it can be mine for only $19.99. The promotional video with its barbells and broken eggshells, is persuasive. Off-putting, however, is the manufacturer's subtle but emphatic prohibition against removing or in any way washing its custom-fit pillowcase, which must be ordered separately at an additional charge. I'm going to skip ahead a little to a list of uh, dream jobs. Random link clicker. Royal bath taker. Receiver of foot rubs and praise. Chief executive napper. Undersecretary of trivial pursuits. Jester to her empirical majesty of unverifiable facts. Procurer of unnecessary hats. Empress of ice cream. Cloud development supervisor. Inspector general of minor slights. Editorial dictator in residence. Bubble blower to the stars. Say was her father's name, Shonigan her father's rank. For a brief span of time at the turn of the 10th century, we know that she spent her nights behind a thin paper screen recording her fugitive aperçu by candlelight with an ink stick on rice paper behind the bolted hind gates. We know that she slept, when she managed to do so, on a small hollow pillow made of polished bamboo. Things to buy, things to fix, things to fold, things to freeze, things to paint, things to unpack, things to order, things to renew, things to revise, things to discard, things to dismantle, things to destroy. The closest I come to writing poems these days are the lists I jot down in the little blue notebook I keep beside my pillow to remind myself, years hence, how my middle years were spent. And uh, then there's a list of unmarked days. So many days are marked, and yet still there are many occasions left to mark. Here are some. Belabor day. 
World Day Against the Abuse of Perfume. World Backtalk Prevention Day. International Day for the Complete Eradication of Goatees. International Day for the Right to the Truth Concerning Hidden Calories in Juice. <laughs> United Nations International Day in Support of the Victims of Screen Fatigue. International Day in Remembrance of Diaries Altered and Burned. Day of the Sleepwalker. Day of the Streetwalker. International Day of the Overripe Pear. Daylight Spendings Day. Divorcee Day. World Day for the Promulgation and Diffusion of Fog. Anti-Dabbler Day. Doris Day Day. World Day for the Remembrance of the Tiny Hands of the Tyrannosaurus Rex. I can swim, Her Majesty proclaims from her pillow one morning. By this, she means that she can cling to my neck in the shallow end of the university pool while I clap and sing a bouncy song about rain to the tune of I'm a Little Teapot with a flagging chorus of other mothers. In the locker room, the toddlers shriek and squirm in sagging diapers while we womenfolk sigh and hide behind our towels. Bolted to the ceiling in the corner above the sinks, the TV, perpetually tuned to CNN, crackles with the constant chatter of catastrophe unfolding on the far side of the screen. Her Majesty, I am grateful to observe, has not yet spotted it. My husband can sleep anywhere. I have a traveling exhibit's worth of shots of him, sprawled with his hands behind his head and a beatific grin across his face, while my twisted shadow darkens the flimsy excuse for a pillow beside him in hostels, rustic sheds, three-star hotels, and stuffy guest suites across North America, continental Europe, and far-flung regions of Southeast Asia. Do opposites attract? Unresolved patterns attract, avers Paul Cutright, director of the Center for Enlightened Partnership in Las Vegas and author of the best-selling You're Never Upset for the Reasons You Think, <laughs> whose flawless bridge work surfaced on my pillow at 4 a.m. today in a health and sex feature I happened to cross in the dark. In the quaint vernacular of chronobiology, the study of circadian rhythms effects on the behavior, anatomy, genetics, and molecular biology of living organisms, the world is divided between owls and larks. Some people are born good sleepers, and some are not. Some of us rise every morning to greet the day's labors with smiles on our dewy, fresh faces, and some of us simply do not. What bars owls from sleep, furthermore, is not the bungled pullout of troops from Afghanistan, not the nuclear stew off the coast of Japan, 
Not our toddlers, pre-ballet teachers' incessant requests for Saturday morning volunteers. Not the mysterious leak that sprung last month in the garage. Not depression, anxiety, stress, or disrepair. But simply an inborn disposition to wander the hallways by moonlight or lie awake on one's pillow making lists. Iffy similes. Classy as a cruise ship. Patient as a pimp. Simple as a snowflake. Sexy as an ankh. Green as the green zone. Cozy as a coffin. Friendly as fire. Easy is as easy does. After tracing hearts with the tip of my finger across Her Majesty's back, ad nauseum in the dark, until losing it at last and storming off to fold socks, I step outside for a smoke under the stars. I bring my tepid sancerre. I collapse in a wet deck chair and exhale triggering the trigger-happy floodlight above the garage, which blinds me briefly and goes dark. For the first time all day, I'm fully awake. Snow blows in pillowy drifts along the brick wall to the west. Clouds glide overhead, downy rafts beyond reach. I pick a fixed point in the velvet abyss and make a wish. May all kama be resolved and the mind flower of wisdom bloom in Nibana's eternal spring. And may I squeeze back into last year's jeans. My star winks and turns red and then banks to the right and heads east in the general direction of dawn. In the distance, someone laughs and then spits. And I will stop there. Thank you. Thank you, Suzanne. I don't think any of us will consider the pillow the same way again after you've just forced us to collectively meditate on <laughs> pillows. Thank you. We're going to keep it going with Whitney French. Don't read the bio. It's an old one. Do you have a new one with you? Whitney French is a human and she writes. Hi everybody, this is a, like a really cool looking room. So this first piece is called Go Back, Can't Go Back. And it's from a zine called From the Root Zine. There's copies in the back. And the zine's been running for four years now. And we publish writing and visual arts by black, indigenous, and women of color. So this is a piece that I wrote. My sister came to my dreams again last night. Her scream so familiar now as if the haunting is a flow, a continuation of her agony when she was still alive. 
She tells me the same thing she always tells me. Bring me back. A dead twin is like a dead limb. Air Canada has a cargo service called Compassion. I don't know why this name offends me. I am told there is a bereavement travel discount. Twins are considered kin. Cousins are not. I tell Misty this and she cries, her annoying cry that sounds like dry hacking. Secretly, I am relieved to do this task alone. On the homeland, inside a footprint, body burnt into soil of a place unvisited for so many years. Conditions of a body for air transport must be embalmed and sealed in a coffin box. Flight ticket must be in hand seven to eight hours before departure for adequate processing. Body must, be, must have following documentation in six sets of photographs. Death certificate, original passport of the deceased, post-mortem report, flight number of co-passenger, one passport size photo. I dream of other twins from other Caribbean islands, muscled and marvelous, carrying their doubles on their back. They trudge silently through ocean, hundreds of beings, powerful, black, brown, toasted yellow tones marching towards the shore. Seawater at their chest, seawater at their hips, seawater at their ankles. I sit under a naysberry tree nearby, empty-handed. The weight of their twin becomes my own somehow in that strange way dreams allow you to feel everyone's pain. And they lay their twin along the beach, all those lifeless bodies fully clothed with collapsed chest, sunken faces, my sister, invisible. She calls to me, bring me back. I push hard until I see the snap of yellow plastic and blue plastic turn to green, ziplocked. The documentation is safely stored. I lay the bag on my bed, and for a brief moment, I feel useful. Back home, we had the most giving mango tree on the whole street. And my sister and I would climb until we were too scared we would fall. My sister, she would glance at me, and then she would push forward, climb farther, leaving me growing smaller and smaller. I was forever the fearful twin from that moment on. Lizards with textured stripes, tiny Anansi spiders, loud trucks, faint gunshots, all these things, they scared me. But in this other home, she became the frightened one. Strange faces and cold winters, sophisticated discrimination, deep isolation, these things terrorized her. Homesickness was an understatement. I wish I took her woes more seriously. In my left hand is my passport. Doesn't expire until next year in a bit. My sister, she got the 10-year one. This makes me incredibly angry. Our photos taken in two different cities and two different provinces look identical. Same messy afro, similar black shirt. They better not give me a hard time at the border. The flight crew at Air Canada loves Jamaicans. Their words, not mine. Passengers joke, sing, hush their babies, and flight attendants smile wide, showing off molars. Bring me back. 
I can feel my sister crossing over as the wheels of the plane hover over the landing pad. I close my eyes tight because my body betrays me. There's applause against the darkness. It's an old-fashioned custom, and it haunts me. She hears it, my twin, and maybe she claps too. After all, she is home now. To me, there is nothing to celebrate. The only thing I know about Duppy is from patches of sayings from elders and that one Bob Marley song, Duppy Conqueror. All of a sudden, the myth, the stories, the magic seems too important to ignore. Will the dreams cease? Can I still call on her? Am I expected to give a message and to tell her I can't go back? Um, so you know that terrible feeling when, um, oh my gosh, that's Liz. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> um, sorry, I didn't mean to call you out. I just saw you there and you're in incredible. Um, <laughs> I was going to do a preamble, but now I forgot. Thanks, Liz Howard. Um, I'm just going to read. <laughs> I'm just going to read. Um, this piece is from a novel that I'm writing. I'm not going to give you the, syn the thingy synopsis thing, but the main character's name's O. And her parents are space pirates, and I think that's really all you need to know. <laughs> or maybe not. So the section is called Hex. Miss Joni watches things happen in her life. She watches her son slip out of her with less pain than anticipated. She watches her husband slip into beds that are not her own, and he too eventually slips away for good. She watches her son slip into the cracks of the black market. She slips on the floor one ordinary morning and loses all feeling in her legs. All these moments slip from her before she can grab it, before she can hold on to anything. Miss Joni watches things with a sad certainty and the dangerous lie that watching is all she is capable of doing. And she too eventually grows tired of the slip and she snaps. A break within her when they shot her son, when they took her land, when they orphaned her grandchildren. Miss Joni would no longer watch. The stress blinds her as if overnight and her vision slips. And she can no longer watch. She snaps and cries from discolored eyes and never stops yelling at Obari, who is, isn't Obari, but every person who allowed her to watch her life slip who taunted her into submission, who slipped away from her. Miss Joni used to watch things in her life happen, but today, under a violent sun, through unforgiving eyes, she sets a spell and curses the entire family until they are cold, until they are gray, until they are glassy and useless like her eyes. So the family that she curses is my main character. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's like the setup. This poor person is going to get hexed before they're born. <laughs> um, so this is called Miss Joni and the Two-Headed Monster. Uh, who knew monsters had mothers? Dead ones. Direct orders. Be nice, a repeated request. I will, oh promised. But her own mother before preparing to play with her neighbors, were Kofi's kids, these twins, these two-headed hellspawn. 
What a difference two years in childhood relativity makes. Eight is so much stronger than six, and eight times two twins is 16 bruises along the arms and the torso and the back and the rib. Eight is power, is we eat dinner and you eat dirt with mouthfuls of soil forced down O's throat. Eight is the age of superiority when the body begins to bulge. Six is the smallest version of the self, past the five-year mark, but so very far away from double digits. O wishes she were tough like her parents. She wishes she knew how to fuck up little monsters. But there was this one time where she felt really bad for them. Not really the dead mother thing. It was another thing. O witnessed her father make homeless of the twins and Miss Joni, bark them out of their homes. Obari rarely raised his tone, but he knew that day, sun arid, and the twins' lips were brittle and chapped, their words a soup of nonsense, and they shuffled out of the only home that they knew, holding suitcases and a bouncy ball under their arm. The twins looked defeated for the first time. So tiny. O could have knocked them on their ass and laughed and laughed and laughed. But she didn't. She shriveled with pity in that heat in the middle of the day, her father a brute badgering them about the sins of their father. Uncle Kofi was dead without notice, evicted without notice, in the sight of small Miss Joni, who never broke up the fights. Oh, asked why. A pruning lady in folding cloth. She dismissed Obari's wrath and walked on out of her home, as if it was her idea all along to leave a land that was not hers or her son's to begin with. And oh, soaked it all in, screamed in her father's face, standing on a chair to match him, ready to receive a beating for her insolence. But Obari, he simply stared into the open mouth of his child and closed his eyes in surrender, allowing his dignity to dissolve into the kitchen floor. So the last piece is called Her Mother's Mother. There's like some content warning stuff, uh, mention of rape but not graphic stuff, um, mention of dismemberment but not graphic stuff, mention of like children and sex trade but not graphic stuff. If any of these things are challenging for you, please take care of yourself uh, before I read. Um, and also, so again, we're back with O, who's my main character. And so she grew up, and her um, mother has passed, and she's looking for her grandmother, so she goes back to where her mother was raised and is hoping to find more about her origins. And, oh, what a surprise. Her mother's mother. Not the type of place you just walk into. People will rob and rape you, she was told. You have to dress down and enter with purpose in the complex. Roadside full of metal carcasses, discarded automobiles. Oh, could smell the kerosene and tar as if locals used it to wipe down their homes of plexiglass and chip tiles and odor spirals and pockets of wind while white painted tires cracked by sun and rain, house the most struggling of aloe plants and desert roses. Children weave in between department stores in second-hand, third-hand, fourth-hand clothes. Children cascading down abandoned escalators, swarming with violence, terrorizing adults who cower in their homes of eroding plumbing, eerie acoustics, each wall heavily tattooed in graffiti. Powers finally found their way to our tiny slice of hell, says Wanda. 
39 years with no teeth to speak of. The old bird, she refers to O's grandmother, just five months back ran this place until the law came. Shut it all down, jailing near everyone in a blink. Or just about everyone. Don't bother them that we're sitting in the living poverty. Don't bother them that we're living in the, the that we're sitting in the living poverty. We lost the main source of economy that we got. No schools, nothing fancy, so the kids got to stealing more than ever. They halfway run these complexes now. Kill adults outright if they don't bend to their will quick enough. The powers don't give two shit. They didn't know it, but jailing the old bird was the deepest saving they could have done. Those children have a bag of excuses to offer. Don't mean no gun killing either. You look nothing like her. And the smoke plumes from Wanda's lips without warning. Oh, gags, but the woman doesn't care. Must take for your daddy, what with no hair. Don't see why young girls go bald these days. And there's not enough time for O to explain, not enough moments when O can trace the woman's pain, her life, her existence, living next door to her grandmother. A neon sign, no MSG, lights the corner of her quarters. So much light and glass and metal and darkness, the only glow is the smoldering cigarette bud on mossing linoleum. Run this town, but they can't run the emotions. Wanda talks unprompted as if this telling would happen anyways whether O was privy to listen or not. Run this town. Run with my legs and they grip like ham hocks. All of her talking, but not once did she mention her legless figure. She lights another light and the smoke billows upward to a mold speckled ceiling fan. This once was a food court. Now light fixtures spit wires snaking above them. O hands Wanda bruised bills as a thank you can gratitude even breathe right in a place like this? She walks past a girl with a blade under her tongue, past the castrated payphone, running as far away from this past as possible. Passed out from running, pimped out for food and spare car parts, O's mother, young Mara, opens her mouth to men on a daily basis. One day, she runs away because a client drops her plant, her pants sent back as if she was buying the wrong milk by her mother. Seeing the overweight, overzealous, older man and spit-shine lips, Moira outran her punishment. No pimps, no walls, no protection for a seven-year-old black girl, but then again, no mother. And then she finally passed out from all that running. Thank you very much. Our final reader for the night. Here we go. Sophia Sinclair was born and raised in Montego Bay, Jamaica. She is the author of Cannibal, out from University of Nebraska Press 2016, winner of a Whiting Writers Award, the Addison M. Metcalf Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, the OCM Bocas Prize for Caribbean Poetry, the 2017 Phyllis Whitley Book Award in Poetry, the Prairie Schooner Book Prize in Poetry, and selected as one of the American Library Association's Notable Books of the Year. 
St. Clair received her MFA in poetry at the University of Virginia and is currently a PhD candidate in literature and creative writing at the University of Southern California. Find out more at sophiastclair.com. Please put your hands together for Sophia St. Clair. Hi, Toronto. Hi, how are you doing? This is my first time in Canada. I'm so happy to be here. And so I'm going to be reading some poems from my debut collection called Cannibal. And um, the book is called Cannibal because of the linguistic history of the word. The word cannibal is the English variant of the Spanish word cannibal, which comes from the word caribal, a reference to the native Carib people whom Columbus thought ate human flesh, and from whom the word Caribbean originates. So by virtue of being Caribbean, all West Indian people like me and Canicia are already, in a purely linguistic sense, born savage. This is home. Have I forgotten it? Wild conch shell dialect, black apostrophe curled tight on my tongue, or how the Spanish built walls of broken glass to keep me out, but the doctor bird kept chasing and raking me in. This place is your place, reefed in red sargassum, Ancient driftwood nursed on the pensive sea. The ramshackle altar I visited often, packed full with fish skull, bright with lignum vitae plumes. Father, I have asked so many miracles of it. To be patient and forgiving, to be remade for you in some small wonder. And what a joy to still believe in anything. My diction now as straight as my hair, that stranger we've long stopped searching for. But if somehow our half-sunken hearts could answer, I would cup my mouth in warm bowls over the earth and kiss the wet dirt of home. Taste bogue mud and one long orange peel for skin. I'd open my ear for sugar cane and long stalks of gungo peas to climb in. I'd swim the sea still lapsing in its sodded frame. The sea that again and again calls out my name. Thank you. This is Pocomania. Um, and Pocomania is a Jamaican folk religion <clears throat> that's actually in danger of going extinct. Um, and it's a female-centered religion that involves dancing and chanting as a way of communing with the past and with the dead. 
And so I tried to mirror the tempo and the frantic music of the Pokomania ritual in this poem. Pokomania. Father unbending, father unbroken, father with the low hanging belly, father I was cleaved from, pressed into, cast and remolded, father I was forged in the fire of yourself. Ripped my vein skin, one eyelid, father, my black tangle of hair and teeth. Born yellowed and wrinkled, father, your jackfruit, foster my overripe flesh. Father, your first daughter, now severed at the ankles, father, your black machete. I remember your slick smell, your sea dark, your rum froth, wailed and smeared my wet jelly across your cheek. Father, forgive my impossible demands. I conjure you in woven tam line of Judah. Father, your red, gold, and green. Father, a flag I am waving. Father, a flag I am burning. Father, skittering in on a boat of whale skeleton, his body wrapped in white like an orthodox priest. Father, on his nest of acolyte women, his beard comber, his primrose, his dahlia, his Nagasaki blossom. Mother and I were none of them. Father washing me in eucalyptus, in garlic, in golden seal. Father in my exorcism. Father the harsh brine of my sea, making sounds only the heart can feel. Father a burrowing insect, his small incision, no bleat but a warm gurgle. Daughter entering this world a host. Father your beach animal, your lamentations in the sand. Mother, her red bones come knocking. Mother, her red bones come knocking at the floorboards. My mother knock knocking at his skull when he dreams. Scratching at your door, my dry rattle of Morse code. Father, let me in. With the mashmouth spirits who enter us, Father, the split fibula where the marrow must rust, Father, the soft drum in my ear, daughter unweeding her familiar mischief, mother jangling the rib cage. I am here. Thank you. Usually people don't clap in between the poems, you know. You have to have like a lot of confidence as a poet to keep going. <laughs> keep going. It's going okay. But you know, you only clap if the spirit moves you to clap. This is mermaid. Caribbean time is ten times stronger than the English variety. Just ask Miss Queenie and her Royal Navy who couldn't yank a Jamaican weed from her rose garden that didn't grow back thick, tenfold, and blackened with the furor of a violated man. The tepid American I sank with my old shoes over the jaws of the Atlantic could never understand the hard clamor of my laugh, why I furrowed rough at the brow, why I knew the hollow points of every bone. But dig where the soil is wet and plant the proud seed of your shame tree. Don't let them say it never grew. Roll that selfish barrel down the hill, sending that battered thunder clanging at the seaside moon, jangled by her long earrings at our sea, ten times bluer than any blue eye. That mint tea whistling in the Dutch pot is stronger than liquor and take six spoons of sugar, please. What can I say? My great-grandfather's blood was clotted thick with sugar cane and overproof rum. When he bled, it trickled heavy like molasses, clotted black like phlegm in the throat. Every red 
ant from Negril to Frenchman's Cove came to burrow and suckle at his vein where his leg was honeyed with a diabetic rot. And when he caught my grandmother in his wide fishing net, he served her up cold to his wild-eyed son, mermaid on the deck. The genesis of this poem uh, is a, a course I had to take on Victorian literature in which I learned that uh, Victorian women were forbidden from practicing the art of botany because um, they thought that the cross sections of flowers and plants too closely resembled female genitalia. And I thought, okay, this can definitely work for me. <laughs> and so this is Portrait of Eve as the Anaconda. I too am gathering the vulgarity of botany, the eye and its nuclei for mischief. Of man redacted, I came, am coming, fasting, starving, carved myself a selfish idol, its shell unsuitable. I, twice discarded, arrived thornside, and soon outgrew his reptilian sheen, a fine specimen. Let me have it. Something in violet, splayed in bird lime, legs an exposed anemone against jailbait August, its x-ray sky. This light, a gorgon, slick, polygamous doom. And God again calling, much too late, who aches to stick an ache in my unmentionable. His primal plant remains elusive, wildfire and pathogen, blood not of human flesh there in his beard. How I am hot for it. Call me murderous. A glowing engine timed to blow. Watch it go with unjealousy shadow. Let me have it. This maidenhead primeval schemes what ovule of cruel invention, the Venus trap the men sees, and how many ways to announce this guilt, whore's nest of ague, supernova, wild stigmata, womb. I boast of vogue sacrosanctum, engorging shored pornographies, the cells unruly strain, rogue empire multiplying for a thousand virile thousand years, my wings pinned wide in parthenogenesis, such miraculous display. Um, so before I um, went to get my doctorate, I was getting my master's at the University of Virginia. And I lived in Charlottesville for two years. And that was a very interesting experience. Um, it was a bizarre place to live. I mean, um, I mean, a part of living in colonial countries is that every place you are, you have to acknowledge is a place of violence. But I found Charlottesville and the people who lived there to not come to terms with the violence of the place they were living in. And so there was a lot of worship of Thomas Jefferson you know, the students at the University of Virginia referred to him as TJ. <laughs> Without irony, you know, there would be a meeting at 
the university about erecting a new building and someone, again, without irony, would say, but what would TJ want? And I thought, what, what am I doing here? Like, why, how, how do I keep finding myself? Um, and so I had to come to terms with it by writing it down and making sense of my experiences. And so this poem in particular was about a racist neighbor I had that lived at the end of my street who daily flew his Confederate flag and this other flag called the Gadsden flag, which is a, a snake that says, don't tread on me. That's been co-opted very recently by the Tea Party and other hateful groups. Um, and so this is the poem that came from living there that particular winter. This is another white Christmas in Virginia. The house at the end of my street has been looming all winter, perched garishly through this sour season, pepper lights slinking red, gold in its wake, heralding the sign of its own coronation, its million chittering fires, Chevy pickup colony declaring the sidewalk. This, their own white sky, old names they refuse to bury, the whole yard a boisterous spectacle. I long to set fire to all of it. The glimmering reindeer, fat snowman inflating his visible lung, ghost child ringing his one horse bell through the night, that bright harassment of Santa's. The idea of America burning holes in the lawn. Who could live here? With enough mirth to power my city, enough of myself haunting me in some other place. Nonetheless, one matchstick man comes and goes on their horizon, walking hard on his invisible horse, Confederate buckle stroke kicking toothpick silences. No words ever pass between us as he hoists and pulleys his large flag, daily hanging and freezing through the verbless rubble of these months, determined as an eagle, clawing at its steady rituals. Don't tread on me. Still, I'm resolved to come friendly, built and nested my cowboy greeting, torched it out into his world and watched it choke soundless die with my good foot caught in their blue hydrangeas, the hawk wife watching. Spies me smiling, waving in her driveway of angels, but swoops up her children and says nothing. But retreats from some darkening on the horizon, some fast approaching plague. poem um, that I wrote while I was at, at Virginia and I was listening to this white male choir singing. And this is called White Apocrypha. A choir of male voices rises from a room out of sight. A short cathedral, bright white jingle, their hymn climbing and falling for almost an hour, cheerfully winding and rewinding this way. I've been waiting here for a friend, hungry and unpeeling some anemic western fruit, observing in my hands its unnatural rind while their voices break into dog howls, all shine and no soul. For them, 
the world is lacquered and clean. For them, every vibrato is measured and paid for. Even looking at the fall leaves has its own upstate vacation, and the old manger is a catalog photograph where the wise men and the moon are smiling. I want that world set in its wide white pearl on questioning. Who can say why my sister, whose impossible voice made the splintered rafters tremble and had women fainting and bawling in the aisles, could find notes to breach that unnameable place which filled and transfigured us but was not enough for her? My sister, whose song made me believe the soul could bloom and flourish, that God could sweat and wail here in the mud with us, still calls me weakly to say there is no version of herself that she can believe in, not even the singing, not even the song. <laughs> I'll just read my last poem. This is center of the world. The meek inherit nothing. God in his tattered coat this morning, a quiet tongue in my ear begging for alms. Cold hands reaching up my skirt. Little lamb, pauper flock, bless my black tea with tears. I have shorn your golden fleece worn, vast spools of white lace, glittering jacquard, gilded fig leaves, jeweled dust on my skin, corn silk hair in my hems. I have milked the stout beast of what you call America and wear your men across my chest like furs. Stick pin fox and snow blue chinchilla, they too came to nibble at my door the soft pink tangles I trapped them in. Dear watches in the shadows, dear thick thighed fiends, at ease please. Tell the hounds who undress me with their eyes, I have nothing to hide, I will spread myself wide. Here, a flash of muscle. Here, some blood in the hunt. Now, the center of the world, my incandescent cut. All hail the dark blooms of amaryllis and the wild pink Damascus, my sweet Aphrodite unfolding in the kink. All hail hot jasmine in the night, thick syrup in your mouth, forked dagger on my tongue, legions at my heel. Here at the world's red mecca kneel. Here Eden, here Bethlehem, here in the cradle of Thebes, a towering sphinx roams the garden her wet dawn devouring.
For more information about the Pivot Readings, go to pivotreadings.ca.